Paul writes something uh, to an early church that I feel like I could just say this to you as well. Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. He says, Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. I do that often. Every time I think of you, I truly thank God. Becky, my wife and I, we thank God for you, that you are family, not just church family, but family, or if you're around here with me long enough, we say family. That's intentional. It's not a weird stutter. Family, friends, you mash it, you get it. So every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my request for all of you with joy. But I love verse five. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. That's why I'm most thankful because that's what we do as a church. The most important thing that we do is tell other people about Jesus, whether it's on a Sunday, a Monday, a Thursday, a Saturday, in this room or in any other environment, we are partners in that telling other people the greatest news ever told, the good news about Jesus Christ. So thank you. That's what makes you the best church in the world because you partner with me in that. And we do that together. We continue to tell other people about Jesus. And that's where we see lives changed. When you meet Jesus, your life changes. When we introduce people to Jesus, their life changes. So yes, we have so much to be thankful for. Thank God for, thank you for, and to be able to partner together in that but we also recognize that we're not done yet, that God's not done yet. And here, even with Paul, he's writing to this church and says, thank you so much for partnering with me in this. Thank you so much for all that you've done. Thank you so much for what we get to see God do in and through you. But God's not done yet. And we get that phrase from verse six. Paul continues and says, and I am certain that God who began the good work within you and within me, he will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So we have a lot to be thankful for, a lot to celebrate, just like a Trace read out of Psalms earlier today. Man, we remember and we look back to all that God has done. We thank him for that, but we also recognize God's not done yet. He's not done with you. He's not done with me in our own personal lives. He's not done with your family. He's not done with your friendships. He's not done with your kids. He's not done with your marriage. He's not done yet. And he continues to be working in each and every one of you as well as in our church. We continue to grow. We continue to change. And that's God working in each and every one of us. Seven years ago, a little over seven years ago now, it's seven years this summer, that Becky and our family, that we moved from California to here. And uh, we came here to do exactly what we felt God called us to do, is to start this church. So we moved out seven years ago, California to Georgia, um, not from the South, obviously. And so we had, a, we had a lot to learn about life in the South. And I feel like we picked it up pretty quick. I still haven't gotten my y'alls down totally, but, but for the most part, we started figuring it out, the nuances of the South and being in Georgia and all these different things. And I've been pretty proud at how we have acclimated and how quickly Georgia and the South has become our home. We were reminiscing literally this last week, and we have some friends, good longtime friends, and they brought up a word that I'd never heard of before. Straight up never heard of this word. Seven years in the South, never heard anyone say or mention this word, and this word gets spoken to me. And I'm, I'm asking Max, like, excuse me? What did you just say? Like, I've never heard of this word. And they were mortified that I had never heard 
of this word before. In fact, they took it very personal as friends, some of our best friends here in Georgia, and said, how have we failed you for the last seven years that we have not taught you this word? How have you lived in this country and in the South and never have heard of this word? And I'm like, man, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. What is it? And the word that they said, and a word that I have had to dive into over this last week, and I don't want to mess it up because I'm still learning a lot about it, kudzu. Are you familiar with this? You familiar with this? They said the word, and I said, bless you. And they said, no, it's kudzu. And I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. And so they just, finally, once they calmed down, I'm not, I'm not making this up. We had never heard of the word kudzu before. So then I do a deep dive into research. I should have been sermon prepping and I was, I was researching about kudzu this last week. So I learned that kudzu came from Japan and that part of Asia area, came over here in the late 1800s. And then from that, the US government thought it was a great idea. Let's plant it everywhere. So between 1930 and 1950, it was planted everywhere for erosion control, not knowing the long-term effects and how invasive it was and that it grows one to two feet a day. Did you guys know this? Oh. I've been fascinated the last week by kudzu. It's the vine that took over the South, that ate the South. Yet I have lived here for seven years and had no idea what all these strange vines were. I mean, I've seen them, but I'm like, oh, there's a name for it. I just thought it was a vine that took something over. But no, there's a name. You have a name for it. It's interesting, isn't it? I say that because... Seven years of living in the South, and I still have things to learn. <laughs> Seven years of living here, and I'm, I'm definitely much more Southern today than I was a week ago. I'm definitely more Southern today than I was seven years ago. Continue to grow, continue to change. We watch college football now, used to not do that. We know the difference between a cookout and a barbecue, big difference. <laughs> Made that mistake one time. <laughs> Still can't do grits. Cannot do grits. No, no, no. And here's what you're going to say. Those of you that are on, you're going to say, oh, no, you haven't had my grits. Doesn't matter. Grits are bad. There's nothing you can do to them. There's nothing you can do to convince me of it. I'll never be that Southern to love grits. I just can't do it. But I can learn kudzu, apparently. <laughs> we continue to change, don't we? We continue to grow. We continue to change. And God does the exact same thing in our own lives. See, we're told, Jesus has come to me, basically, just as you are. One of the greatest invitations we can get from Jesus. But he looks at us when, when we come to him as we are, and he says, thank you, now I'm not going to leave you that way. So yes, he accepts us just as we are at the beginning, but he says, now I begin my work. That's what Paul's talking about here. The one who began the good work within you, he's not done yet. So he continues to change you and change me from the inside out because God's not done yet. There's a card, um, if you're sitting in one of these seats, you're either like sitting on it or it's in the seat backs. It looks just like this. It literally just says God's not done yet on both sides. Grab that for me because I'm gonna give you something to do with this here in the next um, week plus. I would ask, um, this kind of sets up what we're gonna be talking about for the next month even. So come back next week, we're gonna talk a lot more uh, about this idea. But like I said, I believe that God's not done with, with you, with me, your family, not done with our church yet. So I'm going to ask that this card would just be a reminder of that for you and that you would have two prayers, right? Two sides, two prayers. One is for you personally. 
God, what are you still wanting to change in me? God, what are you still wanting to do in me? God, what is my next step, right? We'll talk through a little bit more about that later. So pray specifically for you. What does it look like for God to keep changing you and growing you into the man and woman of God he desires you to be? The other side would be, I'd ask that you would pray that for our church. God, what's next for our church? We have so much to celebrate. Like I said, we came out here seven years ago. We started the church in, in the Dawson movie theater. We're there about three and a half years, and we moved to this building. We've been here four years now. And I'll just tell you, like, myself, my wife, our team, staff, like, the big question we've been wrestling with for the last several years is, like, what's the next 10 to 20 years look like for our church? God, what do you want to do? And we don't want to be ahead of God. We don't want to be too far away, too far behind God, but we want to be right in step with him. So, God, where are you leading us? If you were with me back in 2019, we even did a big vision. I put stuff on the screen, started talking about, man, what God has given us as far as this facility and this property. Here's what's next. Had floor plans about expansion. All excited to move forward. And then COVID in 2020 said, ah, let's hit timeout. Let's just pause. But I want you to know that starting this year, beginning of 2021, we picked up those conversations with architects and the county and, and figuring out what it looks like for us to be a good steward of the entire property that we have. We had been leasing this entire 10-acre property, and as of Good Friday of this year, we purchased the entire building and property thanks to your generosity. So thank you, thank you, thank you. So now we're looking at what does that look like? As you can tell, we're running out of seats, if you haven't noticed. Our kids' environments don't have ceilings. Um, we would love to have some more adequate ministry space to continue to reach other people. So just know this, um, we're still working through that and I'm prayerfully hoping in the next three, four, five weeks, I'll have a lot more to share with you that's super exciting, but I'd ask that you would be praying for that. God, what's next for me and what's next for our church? But regardless of whether we're in a movie theater, whether we build out and expand here, regardless of what's going on in your life, here's the mission, not just of our church, but of your life. And this comes from scripture. You ready? This is kind of my paraphrase of it though, to lead people to fully follow Jesus. That's what we do, period. As a church, that's what we do. We lead people to fully follow Jesus. In your marriage, what do you do? You lead your spouse to fully follow Jesus. What do you do in your own personal life? You lead yourself to fully follow Jesus. What do you do as parents? You lead your kids to fully follow Jesus. That's what we do. So in any environment, in any relationship, and most certainly here at church, that's our heart, is to lead people to fully follow Jesus. Now, what's great about that, and that, that comes from the Great Commission, Matthew 28, read what Jesus tells us, but that doesn't end, does it? No, like there's not a point of, <laughs> I finally made it. I am officially a fully follower of Jesus. No, again, to Paul's point, he will continue that work in you until when Jesus comes back. So we've got a lifetime of leading other people and ourselves to fully follow Jesus. So what I want to do this morning with you is just share a, a passage out of scripture that is super close to my heart. Uh, if you've gone through scripture, uh, chances are good that you have a passage or a story or a scene or maybe even a character in the Bible that you just relate to. You're like, oh, like that's mine. What I'm going to share with you this morning is mine. I, I first heard this story when I was in college and it literally, when I, I'm not exaggerating, it changed the trajectory. It's why I do what I do. Heard this story, read this story, and every single year when we celebrate, I share this story because it's so close to my heart. As I read through the story, I want you to follow along with me, but I want you to be listening, reading, processing this story with two lenses. The first one would be your personal life. Based on the story we're about to read, what does this mean for me? How do I apply this to my own life? That's super important. But I also want you to listen and read through this story with the lens of our church. 
Like, what do we do with this story as a whole? As local church Dawson, what does this mean for us? I'll ask you some questions to reflect on personally, and I'll give you my thoughts on where I see us going and some encouragements on what to do with this story as a church body. So with that, if you got your Bible, be in Luke chapter five. As always, if you don't have a Bible, please swing by the cafe after service, pick you up a Bible. We give them away because they're the most important thing that you could take away from here. Um, So you can read it, study it, bring it back with you, follow along. Luke chapter five, starting in verse 17. Here's the scene. One day while Jesus was teaching, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law were sitting nearby. It seemed that these men showed up from every village, look, in all Galilee and Judea, as well as from Jerusalem. And the Lord's healing power was strong, was strongly with Jesus. So understand the scene. Jesus, we're going to find out here in just a little bit, is in this little house. And it's not just the town that shows up to this house to see and hear Jesus. It's the towns away from the towns next to the other towns that have all showed up to get a glimpse of Jesus, to just see Jesus for themselves. It's early on in Jesus's ministry. So the rumors have gotten out. Word has gotten out and people are showing up wanting to know, is that true? Does he really say that? Is he really like that? Does he really do miracles like that? They just want to see it for themselves to get a glimpse of this man named Jesus. Here's what happens next. Again, word got out, verse 18. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a sleeping mat, which makes sense if if it's known that Jesus heals, if it's known that Jesus does miracles, if it's known that Jesus does all these things, then it's not just religious leaders that are gonna show up, it's everybody is gonna show up. People that need Jesus are going to show up because they just hope that maybe he can fix their problem, that he can heal them, that he can speak those words that will radically change their life forever. But it says here that it's not just this paralyzed man that shows up, it's these some men that take him to Jesus. Now we would assume based on the context here that these some men don't really know this paralyzed man. We would assume that it would have said friends or family members, relatives, but it just says some men, some random men see a paralyzed man and say, this man needs to get to Jesus. Now, it would make sense that they were at least familiar with this paralyzed man. In that day, within cultural context, a paralytic or anyone who was lame or had had the need of the people to take care of them, they needed other people to provide food and money, they would lay out their sleeping mat somewhere in a highly trafficked area outside the market, outside a temple or a synagogue. So chances are good that these some men had walked by this guy multiple times, if not daily, at least throughout the week. And every time they walked by, I would imagine that their heart would just break, that they would see this man and have pity on him. It's like, I'm so sorry. I wish there was something else I could do. Maybe they gave him money at times. Maybe Maybe they gave him food at times. But deep down in their heart, they knew there's nothing that they could provide. There's nothing that they could do that would truly help this man long-term for good. There's nothing that they could do. And let me just say that to us for a second. We cannot change people. You cannot change your spouse. You cannot change your kids. You cannot change your boss. You cannot change other people. But what we can do, what we're called to do, is lead them to the one who can. We cannot change people, but we most certainly can lead them to Jesus. So these some men recognize they can do very little for this man. Oh, but Jesus could change his life forever. So what do you do? When you can't change them, you take them to the one who can. So that's exactly what they do. They pick up this paralyzed man, carrying him on his sleeping mat, and they begin to take the walk to this house where Jesus is. Here's what happens next. 
So they come carrying a paralyzed man on a sleeping mat. They tried to take him inside to Jesus, but they couldn't reach him. And say this part with me, because of the who? Because of the crowd. This is a huge part of the story. These some men finally feel like they've got an answer for this guy, that they could finally get him to Jesus, that they could finally find someone who could do something about it. And they take him to Jesus, who knows how long they walked to get there. And they start to see in the distance the house and how crowded it was. And they get up to the house and you just have to imagine how crowded it truly was. They get there and you have to think that everybody wants to see Jesus and shoulder to shoulder, all next to each other. But here's these some men with a paralyzed man on a mat. Um, excuse me, pardon me, paralyzed guy, kind of need to get to Jesus. Like, move! And nobody wants to move. I got here first. We want to see Jesus too. What makes you more special than us? So here they're trying to get a man that desperately needs Jesus to Jesus, and they can't. One more time, because of who? the crowd. Talk about frustrating, disappointing, discouraging even. And this would be the part of the story where it would totally make sense for these some men to put the paralyzed man down and say, man, we tried. I'm so sorry. We did our very best. We tried everything we could. We got you this far. If it wasn't for the crowd, we could totally get you to Jesus. So we're going to leave you right here. Maybe when Jesus leaves, he'll see you like, we don't know what else to do. We're stumped. We did our best, but we can't do anything else. That would be a very logical next part of the story. But instead, there had to have been a that guy. You know, in your circle of friends, there's a that guy, right? The ones that are smiling, you're that guy, probably. You're the ones that has all the ideas that, that take it maybe too far. And out of this group... There had to have been a that guy that says, oh no, we're not done. We're not going to just leave him here. We can't get in because of the crowd. We can't use the front door. We're going to find another way in. So look at what they, or at least the, that guy decided that they would do. They tried to take him in to see Jesus. They couldn't because of the crowd. Next part. So they went up to the roof and took off some tiles. In other words, they put a hole in the roof. They put a hole in the roof, and then look, then they lowered this sick man on his mat right into the crowd, right in front of Jesus. Please don't miss this scene. <laughs> they come together, they're defeated, discouraged, frustrated at the crowd, but then that guy says, no, 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 we'll find another way in. So they get a great idea to go up on the roof. So they get up on the roof, and I don't even know how you get the paralyzed man on the roof. But they get the paralyzed man on the roof. And you've got to think that if you're the paralyzed man, you're thinking, you know what, guys? I'm good. <laughs> you've done your best. Let's leave it at that. You tried. I appreciate it. Please leave me on the ground. But they get him up on the roof. So now you have these some men and a paralyzed man on the mat on the roof. And you're thinking, yeah, that was awesome. But why are we on the roof? Like, now what? And then one of the guys starts pulling back these tiles, starts making a hole in the roof. If you're inside the room, inside the house with Jesus, just focused on Jesus' every word, just listening and soaking it all up, just like you're listening to me now, like that's the best sermon you've ever heard. Then all of a sudden, you start to see tiles dropping and, and drywall falling down, and everybody starts like the eyes are no longer here. Everybody's distracted, looking up at the ceiling, then back at Jesus, then up at the ceiling, then back at Jesus at some point. Jesus had to have stopped and just started watching the whole thing unfold because this hole is getting bigger and bigger and bigger until this hole is now the size of a person. 
And everybody's eyes are like, what's Jesus gonna do? Whoever owns the house is probably out around trying to figure out who's putting a hole in his house and his roof. But then those some men begin to push <laughs> this paralyzed man on his mat through that hole that they just created. If you're inside the house, you see this mat start going through this hole and then you recognize that there's a rope tied around it and there's a man on that mat and he's pushed through the hole and then he's just suspended up above the ceiling until they lower him down right through the crowd until he rests right in front of Jesus. Paralyzed guy's like, this was not my idea. <laughs> Obviously, I couldn't have done this on my own. The some men are peering down, waiting in anticipation of what's going to happen. Everybody in the room is tense, like, what's Jesus going to do? You don't interrupt the teacher. You don't interrupt the rabbi. And Jesus' response, this is the part of the story that changed my life. This is the part of the story that broke my heart and allowed God to reshape my heart. And this is the part of the story that really is a big piece of the heart of our church. Then they lowered the sick man on his mat down into the crowd right in front of Jesus. Verse 20, here it is. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, young man, your sins are forgiven. And what always strikes me about that part of the story is it's not Jesus saying your faith or looking up to the men up in the roof saying, no, your faith. It's not his faith. It's their faith, plural, more than one. It's their faith. Jesus is putting, giving a nod to those men and saying, because you stopped at nothing to get this man to Jesus, his life is forever changed. And it's a nod to the man saying, because you allowed people to carry you to me, that your life is forever changed. Local church, please do not miss this. Don't underestimate and undervalue your faith and your faith in actions. That when you stop at nothing to get other people to Jesus, their lives forever change. So often we feel like, well, I did everything I could. I can't do anything else. And sure, we have limitations. I get that. But is it possible we still stop a little too short? And what might happen if we took this to heart? that I need to be closer to Jesus, that I need to have other people with me closer to Jesus. Because for Jesus to say, young man, your sins are forgiven, notice there's a spiritual healing before there's anything else. He starts with the heart. And he healed this man for all of eternity. Like this is the difference between heaven and hell that just happened here, that we're just reading about. And forever, for all of eternity, changed this man's life. We are invited to be part of that. Again, we don't change people but we lead them, we take them, we introduce them, we point them to the one who can. The rest of the story, you have some other people that aren't too pleased with what Jesus just did, but the Pharisees and teachers of religious law said to themselves, who does he think he is? That's blasphemy, only God can forgive sins. So Jesus knew what they were thinking and he asked them, which if you ever think something and then have Jesus ask you about that, that's just gonna blow your mind. So it had to be a little unnerving for these religious leaders. Like, I didn't say that out loud, did I? <laughs> Yet he's asking me about it. He asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it, e is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So I will prove to you that the son of man, talking about himself, has the authority on earth 
to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat and go home. And immediately as everyone watched, the man jumped up, picked up his mat and went home praising God. Last part of the story, verse 26. Everyone was gripped with great wonder and awe and they praised God exclaiming, we have seen amazing things today. If you're a follower of Jesus, you, knew that, you know that last part to be true. If you follow Jesus long enough, you will be gripped by awe and wonder and you will constantly see Jesus do amazing things. In the good times and in the bad times, you will constantly see God moving and God working. So I told you to listen and read this story through two lenses, remember? Personally, in your own life, but then also for our church. So let's talk through those real quick. Let's talk personally first. I want you to pay attention to what Jesus told this paralyzed man. After he, he spiritually healed him, after he physically healed him, Jesus gave him very simple and specific instructions. Do you remember what they were? He said, stand up. What was the next one? Pick up your mat and go home. Yeah, walk home. So if we looked at those, now in the story, it's very literal. For us, I want to apply it a little bit differently for us, to take a little liberties here. For that first part of stand up. Now, if Jesus told anybody else in that room to stand up, it wouldn't have been a big deal. It'd be like, okay, like I'm standing right now. But for this man, stand up was impossible. It was something he could not do. It's possible he had never done that before, at least hadn't done it in a very long time. Jesus was asking that man in that moment to do something impossible, to do something he could not do unless there was a miracle. And here's how I apply that to my life, and I hope you would apply it to yours. What is Jesus asking you that requires you to trust him more? What is, what is he asking you that requires you to, God, I can't unless you do a miracle. God, I hear you, and I know that other people might be able to do this, but I can't do this unless you show up, unless I truly depend and rely and trust in you. That'd be the question I'd want you to wrestle with. What is Jesus asking you that would require you to trust him more? If you're asking, well, what is Jesus asking me? That's why you read this throughout the week. So you discover that, and you learn that, and you listen to the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart. He told the man to stand up. What is he telling you to do that requires you to trust him more. Stand up. What's the second one? Stand up and then before walk home, pick up your mat. That's right. This one's always interesting because I'm like, why, why pick up your mat? Like the mat defined this man's life for years and years and years. It was that mat that he sat on all day begging for money and begging for food because he could not walk. That mat represented everything wrong with his life. But here Jesus says, no, pick it up. Don't leave it here. Jesus could have said, stand up, leave your mat. You don't need that anymore and go home. But instead he said, stand up, pick up your mat, take it with you and go home. When this man went home, maybe he rolled up the mat, put it over in the corner. And every time he looked at that mat, what do you think he thought of? Every time friends came over and said, why do you have that nasty old mat in the corner? Like what? Here's what I think. So often we view our past like that mat that we don't want to pick up. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying to be held hostage by your past. But if you forget your past, which many of us are praying, I just want to forget the past. Here's the problem with that. If you forget the past, then you forget about the miracle. The fact that this man remembered what, he, what his problem was and what that map represented and who he was prior to meeting Jesus, it points to Jesus. And it points to the miracle. It's his story to tell. 
So he probably had that mat hanging out every time he had a chance. See that mat? See why it's so nasty? Because Jesus saved my life. And it's there as a constant reminder for who I was and how Jesus changed my life and who I am now. We all have a story to tell because Jesus and his grace and his love has changed us if we've given him our lives. So here's my question for you. Jesus told the man, pick up your mat. I'm asking you, well, what's your story? What is your story of life change? Do you remember the miracle that forever changed your life and continues to change your life? What does Jesus save you from? Not just that one time that you said the prayer. What does he continue to do each and every day of your life? If we forget our past, we forget the miracle. Third part, so stand up, pick up your mat. Last one is go home. It would have been very strange for Jesus to say, stand up, pick up your mat, and go right back to where you were before all this happened. No, but so often in our own lives, we, we meet Jesus and we're changed by Jesus, yet we go back to the same life that we had prior to Jesus. Jesus is saying, no, like your life is different now. Your life has changed now. So don't go back to where you were, begging for money and begging for food. No, go home. You have a new life waiting for you that you now get to begin. Told in 2 Corinthians that anyone who puts their trust and faith in Jesus is a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. We are given new life because of Jesus. So we don't go back to the same things, but that's our tendency, isn't it? So let me ask you this question for Jesus. It was stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. My question for you in this last part would be personally, what are you walking towards? What are you walking towards? Because, don't miss this, to walk towards something, you have to walk away from something else. To walk towards the life that Jesus has laid out for you requires us, by definition, to walk away from other things. For this man to walk home, he had to walk away from his spot that he had spent years at and to begin a new life. So another way you could ask is, what do I need to walk away from so that I can walk towards the life that Jesus has laid out for me? That's all personal. And I want you to reflect on that, ask those questions. That's great Bible study for you this week. Let's talk about our church for a second. What does this story encourage us to do as a church? Three things for you from my perspective and my heart. The first one is all about focus. Keep the focus on Jesus. As a church, I promise this has been the case. It will always be the case. Our focus is on Jesus because he's the answer. <laughs> he's the way, the truth, and the life. He tells us that no one comes to the Father except through him. So he's it. So yeah, I can't change people, you can't change people, but I'm gonna definitely point you to the one who can. And out of all the problems in our own lives and in our world, I'm not pointing to anything or anyone else. It's only a point to Jesus. So we have to keep our focus on Jesus. Just imagine the focus of these some men, how focused and prioritized they were on just Jesus. Because they could have walked to that crowd and they could have, had, and they could have been distracted they could have started complaining about the crowd. Well, if they would just get out of the way or if they did this or if we had a bigger house, we wouldn't be in this mess. They could have been distracted by all kinds of things, but their focus was on Jesus and getting someone who needed Jesus to Jesus. And they stopped at nothing until that happened. So for us as a church, can I encourage us, keep the focus on Jesus, not anything or anyone else. The focus is on Jesus. The second thing I would tell us is keep taking next steps. Now, if you have been with me for a while, you hear that all the time. At least I hope you hear that all the time. Keep taking next steps. Why? Well, because we're called to move towards him, to take steps towards him. In this story, there's three main characters other than Jesus. Paralyzed man and the some men, and then the crowd. The paralyzed man and the some men were all moving towards Jesus. 
Now, sure, the, the paralyzed man wasn't able to do that on his own. Some men carried him to Jesus, and they stopped at nothing. They ran into difficulties and problems along the way, but they kept moving towards Jesus. And let me just say, in your life, you probably have and will continue to experience both of those, where at times it feels like you've got it figured out, and you just keep charging towards Jesus, and nothing's going to get in your way. And then there's other times in your life where you feel stuck, and you don't know what to do, and you don't know what to do next. Can I encourage you to let other people carry you to Jesus at that point? Sometimes you take a next step and it's by letting other people carry you. Other times you take a next step and it's carrying somebody else with you, but you continue to move towards Jesus. The only ones that really didn't move towards Jesus was the crowd. Now, let me just say this about the crowd. I don't mean to knock on them because they were curious about Jesus, wanted to see Jesus, wanted to hear from him. I mean, they showed up. There's something great about showing up. But here's what I would say about the crowd. It's a great place to start, but not to stay. So it's great that the crowd showed up. But at some point, the crowd just becomes spectators, observers, and they're not moving towards Jesus. And guess what? Their lives aren't changing. So let me just say that for us as we figure out next steps. Which one do you relate to? Paralyzed man? Man, I just need somebody to carry me right now. The some men? Man, I'm on fire and let's go. Or the crowd? I'm showing up. If that's you, thank you for showing up. This is not a guilt trip, but it is a recognition of that's a good place to start. Show up, be curious, ask questions, see what this Jesus thing's all about. At some point, start moving forward and take a next step towards him. Last thing I would tell you, and this is my, my favorite one. Everyone was gripped with great wonder and awe and they praised God exclaiming, we've seen amazing things today. Can I plead with our church to stay in awe and wonder of God? To stay in awe and wonder. It's so easy to pay attention to other things. But as a believer and as a follower of Jesus, may we never get tired of celebrating what he's done. May we never get tired of asking what he's going to do next. To keep that awe and wonder of who God is and how he works and how his sovereignty is seen down the road, and how he works all things for good. And even though we don't see it, understand it, we trust that he's working like all of that. Can we stay in awe and wonder of God? In the good times and the bad times, in the highs and the lows, we can still be in awe and wonder of our God. If for nothing else, we stay in awe and wonder of the cross, that God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die on the cross, to pay our debt, which frees us from our sins, which forgives us of all of our sins. The wages of sin is death, and Jesus took that payment. He paid that debt. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the grave, he has both conquered sin and death. And we should constantly be in awe and wonder of that. So much, in fact, that out of everything that we're celebrating today, we're going to celebrate communion together. When you walked in this morning, should have gotten communion. If not, we got our guest services team. They'll walk around here in just a moment. Just kind of raise your hand, be patient. They'll pass out um, communion for you. But a communion is a time for us to celebrate what Jesus did on the cross to remember and to celebrate what he has already done and for us to have that moment of awe and wonder. The bread represents Jesus' body that was broken for us. 
the blood represents Jesus's, the, the juice represents Jesus's blood that was poured out for us, rescuing us from our sin, paying our debt by conquering sin and death. I'm gonna pray, and after I'm done praying, um, then uh, take communion on your own. Again, if you need communion, let our guest service team know, and then you can have a moment between you and the Lord as we celebrate and remember, but we stay in awe and wonder of our Savior. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for all that you have done, for what you've done on the cross, how you conquered sin and death, what you continue to do in our lives each and every day. Thank you so much for loving us more than we could possibly imagine. I pray that we would take to heart the mission that you have given us as individuals, but also as a church, to lead people to follow you. Because when we meet you, our lives are forever changed. For all of eternity, our lives are changed. Thank you for doing that for us. Give us the courage to help others find that as well. In Jesus' name, amen.